This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Hey, it's Samson Folk. You're listening to another episode of the Raptors Weekly Podcast. This one will be a little bit dated just because I'm recording it with my pal over here right before, well, not right before, shortly before the the Cavs game. So there'll be a little bit of prediction on our end that you get to see, was it right, was it wrong? But mostly we're talking about the two and four record that the Raptors have been, you know, working with since the All-Star break, the injuries, you know, the ascendant Malachi Flynn before he gets injured all that great stuff and here to talk about it with me is Sean Woodley who is you know a host on Locked on Raptors the competition as we affectionately refer to each other but uh, I don't know if we've ever had any animosity certainly certainly not to each other but maybe you know we get ugly behind the scenes or something of that nature Sean how in the hell are you man Good man, yeah. You should see my DMs with Lewis, just riddled with uh, <laughs> anti-Samson rhetoric. Uh, no, it's it's pretty hard to have animosity with uh, with with someone like you. You're a good dude. You know what you're talking about. Yeah, you, you're nice to people around you. There's no reason to have any sort of animus. I would say between us. I man, I really appreciate that because that is like literally you can dress up people with a lot of superlatives, but nothing better than like you're good and nice. Honestly, you can't really beat that. So <laughs> I, I do really appreciate that. And good and nice. I don't know if that would apply to the Raptors lately. Uh, wh- what are your takeaways from the last week of hoops and uh, the, the paltry offensive output, the uh, sometimes gritty, sometimes terrible defense. Uh, what are you taking away? I mean, I'm not terribly surprised it's gone this way over the last six because they haven't been whole. And I, I, I think when it comes to like the teams kind of in the Raptors range in the Eastern conference, like I think very clearly they're the one that kind of exists in the most delicate balance where there's a lot hinging on their three best shooters being there and available to kind of make the geometry of the floor make sense for everything else. And when you're missing two of those guys and the third guy is currently really really on the wrong side of the gunner's compromise right now like this is what's going to happen right like you're going to have spells where gary Trent jr like in january goes and doesn't miss a shot and then he's going to have spells where he misses everything and you can't have him in one of those spells where he's missing everything when both fred and og are out because it's not enough shooting it's just as much as i and i think you probably as well don't view shooting as like oh well shooting therefore team is good like it's not like a be all end all black and white thing it very obviously is important to having your offense run properly. And and I I know I've listened to your show and you've kind of been pretty on the train of it's more the offense than the defense. That's kind of behind things right now. And I totally agree with that. And and I think it all kind of goes hand in hand, right? Especially with this team, with the way their defense tends to feed their offense and when their poor offense kind of, it can sort of feed bad defense, right? Because they're not getting back and set and doing their thing. 
it's it just they, you know, the way I've kind of described this team all season is that they are a team that's either in the middle of a positive, positive feedback loop or a negative feedback loop with very little in between. And when you don't have OG and Fred to make the offense healthy, you're really, really up against trying to get into that positive feedback loop where your offense is working, you're getting back in set, you're forcing turnovers, you're scoring in transition, doing the things that the Raptors do. You just can't get that going when your offense is this moribund, right? And I just, I'm not terribly surprised. And I, I don't know about you, I, I like none of what's happened this past week outside of, I think Malachi Flynn really changes how I feel about this team this season. Like I think at full health, they'll be kind of what we expected they can be. And maybe they have an outside shot of sneaking into a second round. There's certainly be annoying to play in the first round if they get into the playoffs proper, but like I can't really change my outlook on what this team is because we haven't actually seen what the team is supposed to be. And unlike a lot of other teams, they just don't have any sort of backstop or insurance when their main guys are out. And so, you know, obviously teams deal with injuries and you know, the, the, the Nets weren't replacing Kevin Durant or anything like that with any sort of good replacement for him. But it just feels like this team is again, such a, it's such a delicate tightrope they're walking at all times that if ever one end of the long balance stick gets out of at weight, like you're, you're kind of screwed. And I think that's just kind of the spot they're in right now. Gunners compromise more abund. These adjectives and colloquialisms are, they're just music to my ears. And so the first thing I want to ask you about is that Gunners compromise Gary Trent Jr. Who mm-hmm. started out this season, I think a little bit cold, but it didn't last very mm-hmm. long. And then he was more or less consistent in the way that shooters can be because every shooter, as you say, the gunners compromise, you have your ups and downs, but over the course of the season, Gary didn't really have that many lows. It wasn't like a three game stretch here. It was maybe two games at most. And then as you, you know, remarked upon blew up, you know, at the end of January, start of February was hitting everything had like an 11 game stretch of 28 points per on like 50, 50, 90 splits. And when I thought about Gary Trent jr, coming into the season I thought about his 17 for 19 game against the Wizards where he had like 44 points and then he proceeded to shoot 36 percent from the field the rest of the year and I thought that was baked into his overall output was this streakiness but he went like 50 games without doing it and now it appears after five games and like 25 percent from the field on a lot of volume that that might still be in the cards Do you think that's part of just being a streaky shooter or do you think that's him being relied upon maybe too much as a a primary creator? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a little bit of both, right? I I don't think, you know, in a normal circumstance with the injuries still existing, like I don't think if you played this past week of games 10 times, Gary Trent Jr. shooting like he has every time, right? Like I I think it's especially an extreme slump that he's in, but I also think you're right in that, or maybe you're not making a statement. You're just asking me a question, but I'm assuming that's where you're kind of (laughs) leaning is, you know, like I I think it is that he's overextended as the number one or two option. Right. And you can afford to have his cold shooting, which I think is the important part. You can afford his, you know, four of 22 games. Not that he's ever really going to have those all that often when he's playing with the full complement of guys, but you can have him have a rough night and there's still Fred and OG there to kind of balance things out and make it. So you're still going to have some, you know, chance to win the math battle when it comes to your three point shooting. It's just, there's no margin for that error right now. And it feels sort of, 
amplified because he is like the second option. And it also feels like he realizes that they need him so badly right now. So he is doing everything in his power to shoot himself out of it, which you kind of have to have him do like right now you got to have him figure it out because no one else on the roster projects as a guy who can give you that kind of volume and accuracy. And so I think you're kind of just, your hands are tied right now until either Fred and OG come back or Gary shoots himself through it. And I got to say, I was really disappointed. There was one moment in that magic game on Friday. He, I think he stepped out of bounds. I was watching at a bar and the sound was off. So I didn't quite catch exactly what happened, but I think he was out of bounds and he stepped on the line as he hit a three. And I was like, Oh, it's fixed. He's back. And then I, I wonder if maybe like the fact that that one got called back only amplified whatever's going on in his head right now. Cause it does seem like there's some sort of fighting it within Gary Trent jr. And like, I don't know how, it works inside the mind of a shooter. I would assume it's just like blank slate. You know, it's like a beta fish just forgetting what happened and doesn't remember its own face. Like it's, you know, it, <laughs> it, it feels maybe like that's kind of what's going on. I, I don't know, man. It's just, it's a combination of an overly extreme slump with the fact that I think he just is not meant to be the number two on a team that normally has him in a perfect role where, oh yeah, he's the fourth option, but damn, is that a really good fourth option you're happy with? But it's not like, swinging a game either way if he's on or off if he's on yeah you'll probably blow the team out but if he's off then you still stand a chance of winning because there's margin for error there with the other guys available Mm -hmm. well it's it's great to have a fourth like he's so malleable in what you can Mm -hmm. ask of him they're like malachi i think this past week has done so well while staying i would say a pretty conservative player he's very conservative he doesn't turn the ball over a lot while he does have to survive on like pull-ups and that kind of stuff for his own offense. It's not like he's jacking a crazy amount. And Gary is a guy who can scale down or scale up according to what the team needs. And the success is what wavers. But I think that he's mostly hitting what the team is asking. And so that's made me really happy. Did you ever watch Recess as a kid? Yeah, I did. Did you see the movie Recess Schools Out with James Woods as the villain? I did. I saw that in theaters with my dad, my brother, and my cousin. I can remember this vividly. <laughs> okay, so you'll remember then Vince LaSalle, the, his moral quandary throughout the movie was aiming instead of throwing. And so you wouldn't mm. have heard this, I don't think, because you were in the bar, but Leo Routens was you know, pontificating upon the fact that perhaps that's what ails Gary Trent Jr. So we got a recess schools mm. out storyline from Leo Routens on the call. What are your thoughts on that aiming versus throwing? Yeah, I've never really thought of it that way, but I, I guess like that's, I mean, I love gunners for those who don't <laughs> like know my, my, my history. Like I'm a Terrence Ross appreciator for the rest Twitter of the time header. and always like, yeah, I really, really love a gunner and I love the like, just the state that they seem to exist in at all times. Right. And so I don't know if that state is like, I don't know if the resting state of a gunner is throwing or aiming, you know what I mean? Like it could be either. And I, and I'm not really sure. I think it kind of might be throwing. It's just like, yeah, you know, I'm good at throwing. So these are going to go in 38% of the time or whatever, but I think that might be kind of the way gunners are wired at, whereas like a more sort of, cerebral player that's not to say gary trent jr is not cerebral but maybe more sort of team oriented make the best play versus you know get my shot off type of guy is maybe more of uh, of an aimer you know what i mean does that like make any sense in the way i've deduced things here i I think like it, it almost behooves a gunner to be a thrower if that makes sense 
Yes, this this is the exact type of hyperbolic conversation that is the fuel of every barbershop or just hangout basketball conversation because this is just like the aimer versus thrower feels very much akin to hooper versus basketball player just with different words on top of it. Yeah. And I think that's very, very intriguing. But the thing I want to ask you about is the guy who has been just incredible over the past two games in spite of all the difficulties that laid ahead of him, and that's Pascal Siakam. 28 points the one game. I think it was like, what, 35 the next. And this is against teams that double him anytime he's below 18 feet. This is a guy who has to time his drives accordingly to rotation to the three three seconds in the defensive key. And there's just so Mm -hmm. much attention. And his potential assists remain the same throughout the game as a lot of other games. But his realized actual assists are much lower because nobody on the team is hitting anything. And he exists in this space of like, just create as much as possible and see if we get there at the end. And he's doing it on absurd efficiency and they're not there at the end. I'm, I'm curious what you've thought about Pascal's last week of hoops. Yeah. I mean, I, I think obviously out of the gate, he was a little bit slow to start. And I think there were reasons for that uh, related perhaps to uh, vacation in some way. Um, and I, and I think, you know, it totally is understandable that it took a sec to kind of get back into form, but I, I think he's kind of gotten better incrementally every single game since the break. And I feel like he's back at the spot now where I just think he was for what was it? Three months before the break where you can kind of set your watch to, Oh, he's going to come out and be the best player on the floor for the team and be their driving force on offense. And I think what you're seeing this week is that, you know, uh, unfortunately, it's kind of like a supercharged version in the last couple of games of Tampa Pascal, where, you know, he's got all this sort of extra stuff to his game. And the finishing is obviously way better this season than it was last year, but still a lot of passing to Stanley Johnson or Stanley Johnson like people, you know, and there's only so much you can do with that. And I mean, the fact that they have been within a couple possessions in these last two games, despite the horrible shooting from their second most important offensive player right now. And with Scotty Barnes going four or 15 against the magic, the fact that, you know, they've still been kind of within shouting distance in these ones, I think has been entirely because of Siakam. And he actually, I made the joke on Friday that it feels like he's he, like what he did Friday with the 34, 13 and two on what was it like 13 of 20. It felt mm-hmm. a lot like what I've seen every time I watch a Lakers game this season with LeBron <laughs> and like, He's just putting up absurd numbers and is clearly the best player on the floor, no matter who they're playing. And it just doesn't matter because it's a team game as it turns out. And there's just not enough right now in terms of play finishing around Siakam to really take advantage of all the stuff that he does to affect winning. He's still trying his his darndest and his defense remains, I think, really strong. And he continues to be the, the straw that stirs the drink on offense. But, you know, there's only so much you can do on your own. Is, is it like a do you just spam Siakam and have him take 30 shots and maybe they win one of these games? Maybe that, that, that could be the answer, but it's hard to do that when, as you said, they're sending multiple bodies his way every time he even thinks about going towards the rim. So it's uh, I, I don't think anything that's happened here has, you know, you know, dimmed my feelings about Pascal and he's been incredible. I've been, you know, super keen on him for the last few years. And I kind of was, riding through the low periods thinking, okay, like the good Siakam's coming back and he has, and I don't think this past week has, you know, told us anything to the contrary. I just think it sort of amplifies the need for 
proper spacing and shot making around a central player like that for a team to really find success. So let's talk about the guy who has been the, you know, you referred to like Stanley Johnson type output, even if the players aren't Stanley Johnson or Stanley Johnson at his lowest point there, there hasn't been a lot of help, but somebody who kind of stepped into the fray, Malachi Flynn, a very interesting Hmm. thing happened. I wrote this piece about, you know, looking at the context of the Raptors roster and saying, you know, guards in the NBA just succeed out of nowhere because guards are so, so talented in the NBA and all they need mm-hmm. typically is opportunity. And the crux of that piece I wrote was like, maybe Malachi has his shot right now. And then he was starting the game. However, like, I don't know, three hours later, and then he started the next four and he gave you 16, five and four on 57, 55 and the free throw shooting isn't good, but 57% from the floor, 55% from three. He's been tremendous. I'm curious what you thought about him and his ascendance in this time. I mean, I got to say, I felt like I was pretty much out on Flynn being a part of the long-term plans of this team earlier this season. I think, you know, he'd gotten some opportunities and maybe they weren't extended runs of minutes that maybe a guy needs, but I was not impressed when we did see him. You know, he just like, for me, the thing with him that's going to make him a viable NBA player is his shot making. Like that's what this team needs from him. And maybe he could find success on a different team where it's less of a priority, but like he needs to be able to finish plays and create his own shot out of nothing because he's often playing in lineups where there's aren't a lot of guys who can actually do that. And so I didn't really think I had seen that in him. And this is like a brand new version of Flynn. And I honestly, I know he won rookie of the month last year in March or whatever it was. I kind of chalk the last half of last season up to mostly being akin to garbage time. Like, I don't know what we actually learned in there really. Uh, And so I was always a little bit skeptical that Flynn would be able to contribute to to like winning basketball. And, you know, I remain skeptical until literally this week. And and he has completely changed. I think my outlook for him and where he fits into this year's version of the team, potentially where he fits into next year's version of the team. And, you know, maybe it's premature. It's been what three, four games of him looking really good, but you know, I, I think he's doing things in a way that he was kind of, you know, the, the marketing on him coming out of school was that he was going to do these things, right. That he was going to be a guy who could operate pick and roll at a really high level and make the reads out of that, that you need, who could be a shot maker, who could hit threes, who could be a pesky defender, despite being small and kind of slight and he's done all of those things that were kind of the, his his benchmark skills coming into the league. And so I feel pretty good about where he sits now. And I think without a doubt, because of the lack of shooting his team has and because of the lack of secondary creation it has, I think he has to be part of the rotation whenever Fred gets back. And I think, you know, obviously the minutes thing has been a thing too. He could certainly help with that department as well. Like I, I think there's just no question that he needs to be part of the trusted, you know, eight or nine guys, whoever, whatever number it's going to be for nurse, you know, coming out of this, you know, injury spell, if they ever do come out of it, hopefully they do. Uh, I think for sure he's got to be part of the team. And, you know, I think I feel a little bit more optimistic that he can actually be a viable backup point guard going into next season as well and, and make it so they have that insurance behind Fred Van Vliet that I felt like they didn't really have all season long until the past seven days or so. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that I'm most impressed and intrigued by is the reads and the progression of them. Because while he has hit 
catch and shoot triples at a higher rate than he has at any other point in his career. That's not typically his own creation, but his own creation, Mm -hmm. as you, you know, highlighted has been a very important facet of this stretch run for him. It's, it's really big Mm -hmm. that he can come in and like eight assists and one turnover from Malachi Flynn is a super, super big deal, especially if it comes with a little bit of shot making pop in transition and off the catch and, you know, maybe you get a pull up, but it's something that when I was writing that piece and I looked, you know, Eric Pascal, the power forward for the Utah Jazz, qualified for second spectrums um, pick and roll ball handler data. He had enough possessions to qualify. Malachi Flynn didn't. And as, as you said, like, what are the hallmarks of his game coming out of college? He was regarded as the best pick and roll player in the country. And this is a guy who at the NBA level isn't even getting enough possessions to qualify over, you know, a power forward on another team and a power forward Mm -hmm. who only plays 13 minutes a game. And a big difference for me is seeing that he gets to run the pick and roll with a talented big like Siakam. And this is where I think it's really interesting to kind of project when the team is healthy, as you said, if that happens, what kind of lineup does he fit into? Because are the Raptors going to prioritize those funk fest lineups with no point guard where Pascal has the ball and they're long and they defend like hell and they rebound their own misses? Or do they keep Malachi playing in these kind of transitional lineups with Pascal so they can keep getting the Malachi Pascal pick and roll and maybe solidify his career or his role with the Raptors like that? Do you have any ideas on that? Yeah, I mean... I think the funky lineups are great and I, I like to watch them and uh, you know, people are probably listening to this or definitely listening to this after the game against the Cavs where they've surely run a whole lot of funk fest because that's all the players they have available to do mm-hmm. so. Um, but yeah, I think there's a, there's a balance, right? I think Flynn can be not just someone who pairs well with Pascal. Like maybe you keep those, those Pascal oriented funky lineups where you're going huge, as an option, but maybe you also sprinkle in some two point guard lineups where you're able to use Flynn on the ball and keep Fred away from the ball, which is where he's been so, so deadly this season as a catch and shoot guy. It limits the burden on Fred as well. You know, you can always go to it when you need to, if you need Fred to be your point of attack sort of main initiator. But I I like the idea of sprinkling him in at a bunch of spots just to kind of alleviate the burden on guys like Siakam and Fred, because they've been carrying it so heavily all season long and all like all all of a sudden here comes this little share of redhead who can jump in and and actually kind of tangibly help in that department it's not like the sort of yeah okay we'll have gary Trent jr run a couple of possessions here and he's probably just going to pull up from somewhere and that's going to be the sort of break that siakam or fred gets like it's a tangible guy who does this kind of as his gig like this has always been his thing to sort of help get an offense and do its stuff and, and i think Using him, yeah, with Pascal, I, I think, you know, playing him next to Fred, I think, honestly, bench lineups where you sprinkle in some shooting in the form of if they're healthy, you know, OG, for example, with Gary Trent Jr., and then maybe like a Precious Achua, where you can run pick and roll with Precious and Flynn and get a lob threat going, you know, slot in whoever you want as your four, be it Thad, be it Boucher. Like, I think there's lots of different stuff you can do because of Flynn's skill set that he's shown he can actually execute against NBA defenses. So I don't think it's one necessarily i don't think it's one way that you're using him once they're fully healthy i think he can kind of diversify the way they play entirely which is i think a team i think this team could really use right because they've been playing basically one or two ways all season long depending on if fred's available 
And I, I just think any diversification to what they do is really valuable. So I think you can keep all those good elements you like, you just maybe have to lean on them a little bit less, which I think considering how heavily the main staples of this team have been leaned on all year is a really, really welcome thing to sort of work into the mix here down the stretch. Mm-hmm. And and maybe the most important aspect is that he was defensive player of the year in his conference coming out of college. And while he's yeah. not earth shattering on defense, I think for a young guard to not be somebody who compromises the defense constantly is a huge deal because, you know, this isn't meant to be too controversial, but young guards suck on defense. Like a lot of times (laughs) they're really, really bad. Even the best ones, you know, it's usually the guy who's played four years in college or three years. And that's the, you know, they they play hard nosed defense and that's kind of their repertoire. But even the star Mm -hmm. guards who are just incredible and play like, you know, 35 minutes a game, they don't play good defense usually. And so to see a guy pop in and you're not giving up anything on that end, that I think is just a huge, a huge deal. But before we get into the rest of the podcast, a quick note, a quick message from our friends over at Jack Health. So you want to get to the top of your game. Jack Health at www.jack.health is an online service for men's health that handles the doctor's appointment, the prescription, and the shipping, which, by the way, is free. All you need to do is stay home and relax. They've got stuff for sexual health, daily health, hair and skin, you name it. Order what you want, fill out some questions, and get it shipped straight to you. Skip having to lay out all your medical issues in the clinic, waiting room, and keep your private business private. Free shipping and easy prescriptions. Boost your game and do it all from the privacy of your own home at www.jack.health. Okay, so speaking of defense, Sean, Precious Achua, and this is actually kind of a double-headed conversation because we're talking about ratcheting up your skill set based on what the team needs. And Precious Achua, you know, while I think that Cam is considered the floor offensively, because he, he'll he do some, you know, small things offensively, he'll cut a little bit better. Maybe that floater is more accurate. And, you know, maybe he'll be a little bit better with making reads on the short roll or something. But when the Raptors don't get to those easy reads, when they're facing teams that are like, well, you guys are limited, get your tertiary guys to create something. That's how you'll beat us. Precious is the guy rather than even Malachi, rather than uh, Kem Birch, rather than Chris Boucher, who will take somebody off the bounce and create something. And he's all, he's been fantastic defensively this year, but I'm curious what you thought of his stretch post all-star break as well. Yeah. I mean, is it safe to say he's been, uh, is it too much to say he's been the second best Raptor since the all-star break, maybe third best. Like he's been, essential to everything they're doing and i i like ken birch man i really am rooting for him i just kind of feel like maybe this ain't his year and i feel like the raptors would be in a way better position if they just gave all of ken minutes all of ken's minutes to precious and just let him figure it out and i and i think yeah it's still rocky sometimes and he might get a little bit ahead of himself and you know he'll have those possessions that make you kind of go what the hell's going on here but that's happened way less and less as the season's gone along right i I think it was probably like a 50 50 all right this is either going to be brilliant or excruciating kind of ratio early in the year and now it's like 75 25 and i think that's great that shows progression And, and i think you know, not again, not to denigrate Kem or anything like that, but we know what Kem is, right? Like he's a, a pretty stable backup center in a perfect situation. 
precious can be a lot more than that. And as much as I know people are sort of like, oh, look at the play-in race and, you know, trying to track down six, and I'm fully on board with that stuff too, I still think this year is more fact-finding mission than anything else. And what more interesting facts are there to find out than what can Precious Achua actually do? And so I've, I've loved that he's had a little bit of agency to do more, you know, with the ball in his hands. I love that he has been given the green light to take any corner three that comes his way, whether he air balls it by three feet or nails it. Like I'm cool with him taking all of those. And I just want to see more of it is basically my stance on it. Like he looks great. He is a lob threat that they have not had like essentially ever, like since like Bismack maybe. And even then Bismack was duffing half of those. Like, he just offers a lot of different elements to this team that they don't have a ton of. And the defense is just so bloody good that it doesn't take a lot for his offense to keep him on the floor. So like, yeah. Why is he not playing 33 minutes in a a game right now? Why is he still coming off the bench? Like just let him get out there. The starters are getting run off the floor anyway, right now. Why not mix it up and just see if more precious can in fact be a good thing to sort of, at least in the moment, be a bit of an ointment for the stuff that they're really struggling with. He's not going to, you know, fix their three-point shooting issues or anything like that, but he can create them some extra buckets that I just don't think Kem is right now. And I don't like making this like a binary thing, like Precious or Kem, but it, it just every time Kem's on the floor these days, I'm wishing it was Precious in his place. And I think that kind of sums up my overall stance on where Precious is right now. I don't even know if I answered your question, but... <laughs> no, I, I think that's good because it... It reminds me of what you said about Malachi and his Rookie of the Month award in April. And, you know, you use the term fact-finding for this year. Like, what actually works? Who is proving? Who's repeatable? And that's the thing about April of last year, that late stretch where the Raptors got Kim on the buyout market and they signed Freddie to the 10-day and then to the full contract throughout the season with the options for this one. And both those guys looked good enough for fans to say, you know, our center rotation seems solid for next year. And that was before Precious came into the picture. That was before the Kyle Lowry trade came to fruition. And I had always really, really disagreed with that. And for the reason that you were skeptical of, uh, of, the, of the Rookie of the Month award for Balkai, I was skeptical mm-hmm. of the burgeoning corner three-pointer from Cam and like the short roll wizardry and all that kind of stuff. And I still, mm-hmm. like Precious Achua this season has probably had a better stretch of basketball than Kem has ever had ever, honestly. And so that's like waiting on Kem, who he might be, you know, a guy who, you know, has had bad luck with injuries in his career too. And I really wish he got to play his whole career without having all this nagging stuff and knee stuff and all this kind of stuff. But I, I do, I am left wondering like, what is Kem really and should the Raptors be trying to extend him and his responsibilities into a starter role? And, you know, why, why not go with Precious instead? Because I think Precious has had a better stretch than Kem has ever had in his career. And he's, he's much younger and he seems to be able to scale things up accordingly, whether it's good or bad, he'll try. Yeah, I, I think like, you're right. I, we know what Kem Birch is, man. And like, again, I don't think that means that he shouldn't be on the team. Like, I, I think he's not making a, a like a hilarious amount of money that you look at and say, oh, God, that's an albatross deal. It's like six million bucks. That's like although his agent going did right say for... he was offered 18 million in the summer. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Getting <laughs> that Rashawn. Actually, Rashawn Holmes didn't even get that money. He uh, only got 10. It was crazy, man. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, we don't, I, I'm not going to dive down the Rashawn Holmes rabbit hole here. Uh, but <laughs> with hey, let me say, if Rashawn Holmes is on this team, you're not seeing. Uh, I think Precious get the the agency that he's been given to figure out what he's got. Um, but yeah, I, I just think like if Kem ends up being your 11th man, I think you're perfectly happy with that. And I kind of think that's where he should be right now. You know, maybe you, you bring him off the bench and I, you know, I think we saw last season, there was a lot of success found with that Boucher and Baines combo, right? The best Baines played all season was just before COVID hit and, and, you know, ruined the season that Baines Boucher killer bees duo was actually doing some stuff. So maybe you can replicate that with a Birch and Boucher. You're it's a little bit less chaotic, obviously, because you're removing precious from the equation, which is always going to lower your chaos quotient. But I think just limiting the exposure of Kemberch is probably not going to be a bad idea right now. Cause like, if you look at the numbers, I think I, I had this stat on my podcast that I did either on Thursday or Friday, or I can't remember now, but the like of the nine most used lineups for the Raptors, the three worst all feature Kemberch. Like I, it just, it seems to be too much of a through line. He's not doing enough to finish plays offensively. He's not enough of a short role playmaker to overcompensate for the fact that he's not finishing. Like he's finishing worse from inside three feet by like 10 percentage points than Fred Van Vliet is like, that's how bad it's been. And then the defense, he's just been slow footed and doesn't really offer what the Raptors typically need from their centers in their defensive scheme. So yeah, do I think Kem can kind of bounce back after a season from hell this year and be a reasonable, you know, bench piece for them next year, a nice bit of insurance and a, and a guy who you can throw against bigger bodies and feel pretty okay about it? Yeah, but I kind of wonder if maybe it's just time to put him in rice for the year and give Precious the 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 rope here because he has done a lot more with it than Kem has all year. So you brought up the the killer bees, Boucher and Baines, and an interesting thing too is that this year, Precious had played super, super well next to Boucher. And it, it begs mm. the question, is Boucher like the big man whisperer? If you play next to Boucher, are, do things work out for you as a fellow big? And is Boucher underrated? I actually, I think Boucher is really underrated on this Raptors team currently. But we, we won't get too far into that. But I had this conversation on the timeline with Daniel Hackett about um, the Precious versus Birch thing. And, and he brought up, you know, uh, Precious plays really well next to Boucher and hasn't been that good with the starters. So, like, what do you choose? And I would choose mm-hmm. both. And I think that's where you and I are both coming from is, like, Precious is the only big on the roster who plays less than 25 minutes and also doesn't get into foul trouble. Like, Precious only averages yeah. two personal fouls a game. He's he's yeah. far and away the best rim protector. He has a, There's a huge correlation between him and better defensive rebounding, just better defense in general by such a wide margin. And the offense is improving. I would just, I would ask Precious to play between like 26 and 32 minutes a game rather than where they're kind of seeing, well, maybe he gets 17, maybe he gets 26. I think I would just guarantee more minutes with the starters and I would still try and keep him on with those Boucher lineups as well. I I, I wouldn't yeah. even think to choose between Kim or Precious. I would just make Kim the backup and make him, you know, operate according to how Precious is playing, where I think it's vice versa. Like Precious has to come in and prove himself against Cam as the rule, whereas I think it should probably be vice versa. I think based on merit this season, for sure, Precious has outperformed Cam. And I think, you know, even when you get to a point where you're fully healthy, 
I don't know if Kem has to be playing at all. You have Thad Young now. Like it, it just, you can have those precious and Boucher crews with the bench. You can go small in your starters. Like they have enough different sort of looks they can go to where like, I've been totally fine. I think with the way they've gone about things in terms of the, the building the bench this season, you know, under the circumstances, would it have mm-hmm. been nice to get more shooting before the year? Yeah, that'd be awesome. But they, you know, they they didn't get it on board. Svi and Utah have not really performed as you would have hoped as bench shooting options. And so they said, all right, well, well it's a deadline. Let's lean into what we do well, which is just have six, eight dudes who try hard. And so we'll go get Thad Young. And now I wonder if maybe there's just one too many bigs in that sort of cluster, right? And I wonder if Kem is kind of the guy that you got to sort of ease out here. Again, it's not easy. He's been starting. He's a great story. He's, you know, the passport works in his favor, certainly. I'm not sure how much that factors into the way the team views him. I would hope it's not a huge factor. I would hope they just go on who's playing best at the moment. But it, it just, for me, most of the times where I've been really, really down on, oh, man, they're playing not so good basketball right now. I look up and, oh, Kem's there playing in the center. And it's just like, it sucks. I hate it. I, I, I want Kem to succeed. He's such an easy dude to root for. It's such a great story. But at some point, I think you got to pull the plug a little bit here and just realize, okay, it's just not going to work this season with the construction of the roster as it is. If you get a more typical bench next season with a little bit more shooting you can throw around Kem, then maybe he can be that nice little dive man for you. The way we saw him play last season, you know, probably not to the, what was it like 11, six and three or whatever he was putting up. It was kind of nuts, but maybe there's like a happy medium between this season's chem and last season's chem to be found next season in a lineup that just doesn't have so many damn bigs all the time. Because while I think Thad and Boucher and Ashua can kind of adjust and, you know, slide to different positions and, you know, fill whatever role you might need from them in these kooky lineups. I don't think precious has that malleable. Sorry. I don't think chem has that malleability. And so that leaves his utility to me a little bit less than the rest of the guys. And again, I don't feel good about this. It makes me sad. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, I mean, that's the thing is when you put Kem, it, what are his standout abilities, you know, at, in so in so far as his career? And we look at, okay, well, the short roll passing is something that he genuinely is something he succeeds at. And I think... You know, he does it at a higher level than a lot of his contemporaries outside of the mm. premier passing bigs. He also has a really positive impact on defensive rebounding, and he's been just an incredible offensive rebounder this year. And on top of that, he's usually a positive defender. And that sounds like a guy who should be playing, especially because of the short roll passing and offensive rebounding. If that's a guy who plays with a bench who shoots really well, He's going to be able to find a lot of shooters on the short roll, and he's going to be able to find a lot of people in relocation after the offensive rebounds, except he's playing on all these offensive lineups that don't typically shoot that well at all. And so a lot of his advantages created just aren't really there. And it's kind of, you know, especially lately, we see 0 for 3, 0 for 3, 1 for 5, 0 for 5, like these types of games. And he's just being funneled into a shot maker lately. And it's it's just tough. And it's it's interesting you brought up, like, within you know within reason they did what they could with the bench and what shooter was available that was better than Svi and you know Svi was always you have to bet on one of two things happening coming into the season he had what like you know 400 three-point attempts that roughly came in around 32 percent but he had that one year where it was 280 attempts at like 41 percent and 
The Raptors yeah. made their bet, and he's shooting like 31% this year, and he hasn't had a, a game actually in, in, in a Raptors uniform where he's made more than two threes. And that's just like Justin Champagne has a game where he's made four threes. It's just tough yeah. to swallow. And they, like you said, Utah, Malachi, these guys who they might have expected progression in the catch and shoot area or even just being able to attack closeouts, none of that came. And I guess we still wait on on Malachi as well. But yeah, things that they might have expected to progress quite simply just haven't. And, and that brings us yeah. to Thad, I think. If, yeah. Or go ahead. Before it sounds I, like you have a... Yeah, I just I want to, on that sort of note, I want to ask you about Utah a little bit. Because like, I've been trying to figure out why he fell out of favor so quickly. He came back from COVID, had like two bad games, and then that was kind of it. And maybe the last couple of games here where he's gotten some run mean he's going to kind of get back in the good graces here, but it feels like he helps so many of these lineups when he's out there because of his defense. And he's still shooting 38% from three, not crazy volume, just 2.3 a game, but in 13 minutes, that's not bad. Like that's you'll take that. They need that. What the hell's gone on with Utah? I have not been able to decipher exactly why he was just cast aside after a couple bad games upon returning when he looked really good before he got hit with COVID. Yeah. That I think it was 26 and 13 he had against the Cavs when the Cavs like blew them out by like 40 points or whatever. But, and he, <clears throat> when he was kind of, you know, subbing in and giving you like a solid 12 minutes or something, the big thing for Utah right now in his career is the aggressiveness, I think. And, his large inability to finish through contact or just in general at the rim. If it's not a wide open layup or a wide open dunk more, more than anything, you know, I, I haven't looked at this, but per my eye test, it's like, you know, 80% of the time it's getting stripped, it's getting blocked or it's a miss or he's passing out. It's just when he has a chance right. to go downhill, there's nothing coming out of it. And he's also not high volume from three. So a lot of times on offense, it seems like he just takes seconds off the clock, which sucks because he clearly has the skill set to be doing more than that. And we've seen that in a couple different contexts. You know, there's been a few games with the Raptors where it's looked better. There's also been, you know, he, he had that great Olympics run with Team Japan. And you wonder, like, that, that's the thing about Malachi, too, lately, is it's something just has to click for these guys. They just have to start seeing the floor in a way where they can translate their skills and that's, mm-hmm. that's the tough part for me is Utah has the skills very clearly. 38% from three is not easy to accomplish in the NBA. You just want him to be able to ratchet that up accordingly. He just hasn't. And defensively, I think he's had a little bit worse of a defensive year than last year. But, yeah, you know, fair. it's a more changeable defensive scheme this year. And half the time, Utah can't rely on, you know, static rotations because guys are constantly – screwing up behind him and that's kind of the that is what happens in this Raptors defense like how many times you know listener Sean whoever have you seen Scotty Barnes make the same rotation as somebody else like they're attached at the hip and xing out to the same guy and you're like okay why are there two guys making a rotation you see it happen quite often (laughs) and Utah is clinical Utah isn't like this big sweeper who corrects mistakes that are made he's like Imagine if he played on the Phoenix Suns or something, how good he would be with Michael Bridges and Cam Johnson and, you know, Chris Paul, probably really damn good. It's just that his skill set seems a little bit wasted defensively on the Raptors right now. And maybe his offense just needs to be unlocked. And I guess the Raptors have just decided to try and do other stuff this year. And it's, it's too bad for Utah because I think like there's a good player waiting there and 
both mm-hmm. from a team context level and from a himself level, I think that still has to be unlocked. But that's kind of my thoughts on Yuta. I didn't mean to derail the uh, the Thad talk there. I've just he's been a fascinating case for me because he does feel like he offers a lot of the things the bench could really use. He he to mm-hmm. me reminds me he's a little bit more of a fluid athlete, but he reminds me oh, he's, he's a either tremendous athlete, it, yeah. He's a really great athlete, but he's in one of two states to me. He's either good Patrick Patterson or really bad Patrick Patterson. <laughs> and like, he, if you can find an in-between, then I think that'd be a serviceable dude because good Patrick Patterson was like the plus minus God of the NBA for three years. And bad Patrick Patterson uh, walked into travels on wide open three attempts. Uh, yeah, uh, different players, but same kind of vibe I get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So the thing I want to talk about is this is really leaning into the human aspect. And we kind of got there by accident talking about Utah and Thad Young. Oren asked mm-hmm. like a, a good question to Precious about Thad and how Thad has affected him. And Precious was just incredibly forthcoming about how Thad has impacted him since joining the team and how he's changed, how he looks at some things. And he constantly mines his basketball brain for insights. And that's the thing mm-hmm. too, is I'm curious, like, when the Raptors made that Thad trade, and honestly, just from looking at the trade, it looks like the Raptors probably giving up a first round pick didn't get the best, you know, I don't know, value out of it, let's say, because, you know, is Thaddeus Young worth a first round pick? Who knows on its face as a basketball player, but then there's the human aspect. And this sounds like you're carrying water for the organization when you say, oh, he'll help the young guys develop. But then a young guy comes out and says, oh yeah, I'm, playing way better because I talked to Thad every day and learned from him. I, like, I'm curious mm-hmm. what you think of that because it's kind of like, well, damn, I mean, you can never know anything about basketball because somebody can just be like, Oh yeah, this small personnel, like this small personnel thing is actually what did it for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I certainly buy into the sort of personal juju side of things. Cause I watched Kyle Lowry play for the Raptors as long as he did and sort of impart wisdom to, to dudes and, then those guys would then talk about what Kyle had done to help them. And I think it does matter. Like, I think, you know, teams that just roll out only guys who are in their early twenties tend to kind of toil, right? Like we saw this with the process Sixers for a very long time until they kind of just started making big moves and sort of anti-process moves really to go get Butler and, and kind of, kind of accelerate things. Um, we see this with the thunder right now. Yeah. They have Derek favors, I think, but like, they're very, they're very, very young and super impressionable. And if you're impressionable, you're probably just going to pick up what's going on around you. And if it's a bunch of guys just who don't know what the hell they're doing because they're 22 making their way in the NBA on a bad team, that I think is going to sort of be a bit of a negative cycle for things you're taking in and things you're using in your own game. So I fully believe that there's a lot of value in bringing in guys like Thad to the, to, to the, to the locker room to sort of be there as, you know, not only a good player on the floor, but also a sounding board for younger guys. You know, I, I think it's um, Drew Fairservice, who's a great Blue Jays podcaster, sort of uses this a lot when he talks about, sort of bringing in veteran guys to the Blue Jays locker room and a young team. And it's a lot about like, hey, you know, they brought in X reliever who's been in the bigs for 10 years and has made $100 million. There's something to the idea of, hey, I've been in the league for this long and I've made this much money. Uh, This is how you get there. And I think with Thad, I mean, the dude's been in the league for like 13 years. It's a lot of 
like it's a lot of sort of experience he can sort of lean on and say, yeah, you know, I've made $123 million in my NBA career doing this. Here's how you can do the same. Like maybe we shouldn't boil it down to the money side of things, but I think it has to be part of it because it's a big sort of thing hanging over all these guys and their limited time in the, in their pro careers having a guy who can tell you how to make your, your, your nut is, is a kind of valuable thing, I think. And it also helps that, I mean, I don't know about you. I know it's been a little bit of a weird fit sometimes, but I am fully on board the fad train. I have fallen so mm-hmm. fast and hard. The pass fake where he like nearly took Bruce Brown's head off of like the bones holding his neck up. <laughs> that was just as delightful a play as you're going to see. And I mean, mm-hmm. I know you, you make a good point that, Maybe, you know, 20 games of Thad Young is not necessarily worth the 10 or 12 pick drop in the draft this season, but they got his bird rights and I don't think he's going to really come at a crazy price to keep around. He seems like he likes the team and likes the identity of the team, likes the role he's been occupying from what he said, what the team has said. Like if they bring him back on a reasonable contract, I think you can totally justify that deal as sort of a, a nice free agent ad, especially since it looks like, you know, Boucher is going to be a free agent. Do they keep both of those guys? I don't know. Does Boucher go elsewhere? Uh, you know, Utah's probably going to step aside. What's the future of Kem? Like this whole big man glut could get a lot less glutty pretty soon. And maybe you're all right with that being your bench four or a small ball five. And you're pretty comfortable with that. So I, I think the jury's still out there, but I think the tangible impact of having and this is honestly why I wanted to keep Kyle Lowry beyond last year's deadline is like, you no, know, there's no, nothing bad is going to come of two extra months of Kyle talking to young guys about how to be good at basketball, you know? So that's kind of where I'm at. Old guys. Good. <laughs> well, you made the, you made the case, obviously like that's, I don't mean it to come off as I think that is a poor fit. I think that is a great fit. It's just about, you know, what is the cost and you know, how, how sure. an analysis can get bogged down in anti-human rhetoric, I would say. And literally all a player has to do is give you a sliver of insight. And it, like, because the, the information gap between anybody outside of the team and anybody inside of it is just so ginormous that, you know, a lot of, a lot of times we talk about players as if there isn't the human side because we can't interact with it because we don't control the flow of information. But as soon as somebody says that, it can kind of reframe the way you see a conversation. And who better to teach big men how to survive in the league than somebody who quite literally was able to reinvent himself past 32 years old because of how ingenious his reads of the floor are that he's like, oh, yeah, now I'm one of the best playmaking bigs in the league, I think is a a really Mm -hmm. cool way for the Raptors to index and teach their, their bigs how to do stuff. But I think that's mostly what I want to talk about outside of uh, the Cavs game. Do you have any thoughts coming into this one? It's it's all funk fest, as you said earlier. Uh, any predictions, if you're willing to give them? Yeah, I mean, I'll probably take the Cavs to win this one. I just wish that we could see the Raptors and Cavs play each other at full health. Uh, I think mm-hmm. they did play early November, if I recall. I remember that was a game I was at. It was actually three. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And like Scotty, I think had himself a pretty good game, if I'm not mistaken, or he grabbed like a million offensive rebounds, if I recall. I, I'm tips at forgetting the, the details. It was it was the right. It was right. the re- redux of game one against the oh, Cavs, basically. Yep. Yeah, no, it's all coming back now. Don't don't like that. Uh, <laughs> but 
Yeah, I just like these two teams are really interesting to me. I think they're probably a lot closer to one another than the standings to this point in the season have suggested. And I think mm-hmm. the Cavs are kind of crashing back to earth a little bit as maybe we probably should have expected from a team that's that thin and that offensively challenged. Um, but like, you know, I remember thinking back to that game. It was before sort of it was kind of in that sweet spot where things felt good COVID wise for a while there before the next wave hit in December. And I remember sitting in that game, watching those two teams go head to head, watching Mobley and Barnes and thinking, Oh, we're going to get to watch this so much for so long. This rocks. The crowd was as loud as I've heard it. Like since pre pandemic times, like it was just a, it, it was like one of the most normal I had felt in quite a while. So like I, that, that game gives me fond associations of these two teams playing one another. It's funny that the other game they played was the boxing day game where the Rutgers had no one available uh, <laughs> for you to went for 26, as we mentioned before, but I, I just want these teams to play each other close to whole because it seems like it's going to be a long-term sort of tete-a-tete between these two teams. Like they're both rising. Mobley and Barnes are amazing. It, like maybe the Sixers or the Nets or the Heat kind of age out and these teams are part of that next wave that kind of moves in to fill their shoes down the line in the Eastern Conference. Just uh, it's a bummer that we don't get to see them at full health. It's a big one, obviously, with the standings and the race for the sixth seed. You know, I, I would like the Raptors to get that. That would be cool. Um, but yeah, it's hard to have really like a strong prediction on it because I just I don't know if the Raptors are going to have the sauce without Flynn or Fred or OG to really get to that insane backline of defense that the Cavaliers present. So I'd probably predict a Cavs win, but uh, I also don't know if the Cavs are like a truly horrifying team to go up against. And maybe they can, uh, you know, muck them up with their defense and keep the Cavs offense sort of at bay, which is not the hardest thing in the world to do when it comes to teams you're trying to keep at bay. What are they like the other well, 19th in defense? Like they're not terrible, but they feel like maybe a team that you could kind of, uh, you know, stifle if you have a really sound defensive effort, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, the most interesting thing to me probably is how far does Pascal Siakam's wizardry extend? Because yeah. there is no team like Miami limits more paint points than Cleveland does, but that's just because Miami sells out way more. Like Cleveland on its face is the best rim defending team in the league. And Pascal Siakam has been finding holes and punching gaps that don't exist these past two games and doing it at like 67% shooting. How far does that extend when Mobley and Jared Allen are there? Like, because there's going to be no shooting, they're going to be just the funk fest lineups that, yeah, as we talked about, like, you know, what, what possibly could happen there? And, you know, I'm not really looking forward to Pascal having to try and navigate a maze that has uh, no entrance and no exit maybe, But uh, he'll be in there, I guess. So that's interesting. And you also, you brought up. A lot of, it's going to be a lot of jab steps from 16 feet, I think. Yeah. <laughs> this one. Yeah. You also, hey, maybe those go down. He's been hitting those pretty well. So. I Man, I, cer- I certainly hope so. You also brought up, you watched the game in a bar. How was that? That seems like normalcy. Yeah, it was nice. Uh, it was not like my bar of choice necessarily. My, uh my future father-in-law wanted to go to a, a more a, a large loud chain sports bar 
<laughs> I'm Hell not going to yeah. blow up anyone's spot. Uh, but yeah, you know, you felt uh, the, the the loudness of the TVs and the, you know, the overstimulation. It was actually kind of nice to be overstimulated, you know? <laughs> it's It's been a while since I had a lot of stimulation. It's been a lot of just looking at my Nintendo Switch while the... <laughs> it gets dark outside has been kind of been the thing so yeah it, it was nice it was you know it, it would be cool if it was a better game but yeah watching i was sitting there like trying to get mad at the result against the magic but i'm sitting like over a plate of chicken wings eating like drinking beer and i'm like <laughs> you know what this is fine I, they'll be all right and uh, i'm glad that this experience is what's going on <laughs> i'm gonna order chicken wings tonight just because you also you know what you brought up the blue jays how much does that suck, yeah. dude? I was going to ask you to do a Blue Jays podcast with me, basically. I just got into it. I played oh, baseball till I was like 15. And I find, and I used to watch every Jays game in the summer. And then I finally got mm-hmm. back to it last year. I was like, Vladdy, Bo, Teoscar, the coolest man in the world. I was like, man, this team kicks ass. And sorry, Raptors listener. I'm sure you like the Blue Jays too, so this isn't that bad. But, dude, that sucks. There's not the other Toronto team that everybody hates. The Blue Jays are everybody's fave. They're the summer vice, you know? <laughs> Just as things are getting good, no Blue Jays. I got to tell you, man, that sucks. Yeah, it's a, an enormous bummer. The owners in baseball, uh, like, they just know no bounds. Like, if you don't feel like you're making enough money on your vanity project, sell your goddamn vanity project. You know, like, it's not that hard. No one's like holding a gun to your head and saying, you must own the Cincinnati Reds, sir. They can just sell the team and it would be fine. You know, Jeff Passan put it really well in his like big takedown right around the time that the lockout uh, canceled games. Um, where he basically put it, yeah, if you take the next 1,200 best baseball players, the game is going to suffer terribly. If you replace the 30 owners with 30, you know, reasonably competent business people, the game would not suffer and in fact would probably improve. So uh, yeah, the owners suck. I am very bummed that this Jays team doesn't get like a full run. That said, I, you know, they'll, they'll get back. I don't think baseball, like there, there has to be some self-awareness you would think like baseball (laughs) can't go canceling a full season after the, the pandemic when people already don't like baseball that much. Like, they got to be smarter than that. So I'm hoping like the week of canceled games is as close to like, as maybe as far as it goes, we'll see. It's probably going to be more, I don't know, but as long as they don't get this entire season canceled and we don't have to feel like, Oh no, the blue Jays are the new 94 expos who very clearly had a title shot erased by the greed of the owners. Then I think I'll, you know, this is the thing. Baseball probably took a look at like what its fan base is. And it's mostly uh sickos like me who are going to come back no matter what <laughs> and they're like yeah we don't have any sort of casual fans because we're baseball everybody hates us but we have the diehards and those freaks will come back no matter what happens so let's just lock them out as long as we can to get a good deal that's kind of my cynics view on it but i'm absolutely going to be there eating from the trough the the day that uh baseball comes back because i'm a little piggy i can't stop i, I love dingers samson i i can't escape this and it's just uh, the way it is. But yeah, it's a huge bummer, man. It sucks. But that could, sometimes the playoffs kind of get in the way of watching early basketball anyway, or early baseball anyway. So maybe it will be like a refreshing, oh, basketball's done. The Raptors are out. And we just slide right into baseball in June. And maybe that's just the way it should be. I don't know. The the thing that was best for me last year, because the Raptors, that was, a. I know you agree with me on this. Last season, 
you and I talk about every game. We watch every game. We talk about the team every oh. day. And talking about that Tampa team was so tragic. That that was, and of course, this is like, you know, a, a sports writer complaining about covering sports. I, please, nobody yeah. be upset with me. <laughs> we the have caveats, it all right. Computing. Yes, caveats are, are there. But being able to, because you can just rewind anything in baseball, but just being able to like turn on the baseball game on mute and just have it play beside mm-hmm. the Raptors game was so cool. And another thing, I saw that the owners keep trying to place like restaurants and stuff outside the vicinity of the ballpark, but still within the property so they can funnel Uh away money from the CBA, but still have it make money like adjacent to the ballpark. I was just like, man, I dude, I hate it. So before this, they're ghouls, man, they're ghouls. Sean, it's like an entire league of Tillman for Tita's. Sorry. (laughs) Yes. yes. Carry on. Yeah, that's why I was just going to say, like, before we get too far field, which we already are, uh, we're going to cut this bad boy off and say goodbye to everybody, but not before I thank you for coming on, man. Of course, man. I always love chatting ball with you. It's uh, it's always uh, a wonderful, wonderful time. So thanks for having me, man. We, me and you, we're going to a Jays game together. Me, you, Blake, whoever else wants to come along. When I move to Toronto yes. and I finally start working there, our little uh, – the little – dinger piggies that we are we're heading out to a jays game 100 <laughs> percent. please make that the title of this episode everyone will be so confused <laughs> dinger piggies all right sean uh thanks so much for coming on man it's been a pleasure listener thanks for tuning in uh whether you got into it in the morning or at night have a blessed day and goodbye <laughs>